When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Great show for you guys today. Mitchell Schwartz, friend of the program, is going to be joining us a little bit later to chat all things Kansas City Chiefs. But before we get to Mitch, I'm very excited to welcome our resident quarterback, here at the Athletic Football Show, it's Chase Daniel. Chase, how you doing, man? Good, good, man. I like this, uh, like this setup. You're in Vegas, I'm in San Diego, and it is literally nonstop raining for five days. And so I'm on a first flight out in the morning. So I'm going to a little bit colder weather. I'll be there in Vegas uh, around Radio Row on Thursday. So maybe I'll I'll see you guys. We will be here. We will be at this table for a very long time here over the next couple days. All right, let's dig into all things Super Bowl here. I want to start with the quarterbacks. These We've had a lot of quarterback conversations this season. This is the culmination of all of that. I don't think you can take two guys in more disparate situations than Patrick Mahomes yeah. and Brock Purdy. Patrick Mahomes is a first-round pick. He's won multiple MVPs, trying to win his third Super Bowl. I think is objectively the best player and best quarterback in the NFL. And you have Mr. Irrelevant on the other side, a guy whose value to his team, standing within his own team, has been debated ad nauseum here over the entire season. What about this quarterback matchup interests you the most? Well, you know, I was an NFL Network opening night last night. We did three shows, total access show, and we had to watch not had to, we got to watch the entire Super Bowl opening night. And I thought it was awesome that the thing that stood out to me was when the teams were up on the stage together with Scott Hansen, like the very first, the very first thing that they did when they were together. And, you know, Purdy is over there, like seventh round pick, Mr. Irrelevant, and just like taking it all in, like Mr. All-American, all of his answers. I mean, like what he said too, like life isn't about you. It's about being a part of something bigger than yourself. Like that whole quote to me was like awesome. Like how do you not love this guy right now with everything that he's doing? And then just in the background, like they went to Purdy first, just in the background is Patrick Mahomes just lurking and got that smile on his face. Like, man, you got no idea what you're, what's in store for you. Like that was the best moment of the night because we all said it, like the analysts up there that we were talking about. And I'm just like, Oh man, like like Purdy just is glad he's here. Mahomes is like, I'm gonna freaking cut your, <laughs> like cut you down, man. Like you could just tell, but like Mahomes is nice and everything and, and, and all that stuff. And, and look, it's just two completely different ways, like you said, on how to get here. Mahomes is without a doubt, like especially if he wins this, is, is in the running for the greatest quarterback of all time, and he's only played seven seasons, right? Six straight AFC championship. You can just list the superlatives and then you have Brock Purdy back-to-back NFC championship games, but Mr. Irrelevant and he was their third string quarterback. And I thought it was so fascinating how Kyle Shanahan, he got a little bit open with everyone and he was able to say to us and talk about the game manager tag, in my opinion. And I thought his quote was 
awesome because he was like, listen, guys, he was like, finally, what finally some fire under him and talking about Brock Purdy. Like, listen, I love that my quarterback's the game manager. I actually want game managers because one, you got to be able to manage the game. Two, you got to be able to run the system that you're asked to run. And if you can't, you're going to be on your way out. And three, you got to make plays when all that other stuff breaks down. And he said, if you don't do those three things, you're going to find yourself on the outs. And whether that's two games or two years or whatever it is. And he's like, Brock does them all. And that's exactly what I want out of my quarterback. So I really feel like he's finally got his guy. Like he had Matt Ryan and in Atlanta with the OC 28-3. That's been well documented. He had Jimmy Garoppolo 2019. They had a 10-point lead with eight minutes left in the game. And then he finally gets to, I think, someone that he really trusts to run the offense. And, um, you know, they're going to have their hands full. And then you go to the other side with Patrick Mahomes. It's just like, like, what else do you want me to say? Like, the best player in the world, the best player in the world is getting better. And he's gotten better as the season's progressed, which is really scary for teams. And so it's just something that you look at and it's like from a like I, I feel like you're gonna look back on this Super Bowl in five years and you're gonna be like, man, like Mahomes versus Purdy. And then I, I think you're really gonna see Purdy ascend. I don't know if he's gonna be ever be on the level. I mean, he won't be on the level of, of Patrick Mahomes, but I think we talked about this, and you asked me maybe a month or two ago. No, maybe like two or three months ago in October when Purdy was rolling. It was early. It was probably about halfway through the season, maybe not even. It was early, and you asked me, you said, would you be okay paying Purdy? And I was like, I don't know. And now I'm like, yeah, yeah, I would. Like, like he's proven himself to me that he can run a franchise. Yes, he has great players. Yes, he's a game manager in Kyle Shanahan. Sir. That's exactly what he wants. And so if Kyle Shanahan, John Lynch are going to be around, like I would expect Purdy to get paid. And he's got another year. They got him on a rookie contract for another year. They don't have to re-up him until after next year. Um, but just such an interesting – Dynamic. Another thing too, and I know we'll probably get to this, but I did want to hit because I was looking at this. I was like, I love these questions. Is I don't think even if Brock Purdy wins the Super Bowl, that he's going to stop getting hate. Like I feel like he's going to continue to get hate his entire career. Like I, I like you. You're telling me that our haters going to be out in droves if he wins the Super Bowl, and I'm going to say yes. They're still going to find a way to pick him apart. And I think he's just got such a really good demeanor about himself. So I want to talk about this on a couple different levels. One, the game manager thing. The game manager tag is wrong. Even if you are a detractor of Brock Purdy, the detraction shouldn't be that he's a game manager because he's not. That's not what he is. His, his selling point is that he's actually making plays outside of what the offense is presenting to him. Jimmy Garoppolo was a game manager. There's a lot of underneath throws, a lot of stuff that was on schedule, very little outside of the structure of the offense. Brock Purdy is not a game manager. He's more aggressive. He's pushed the ball down the field. The work he's done as a scrambler is a selling point. If you're going to take away from what Brock Purdy is, calling him a game manager is wrong. Pointing to the help that he has, that is potentially correct. It's how much help he has compared to how much help other great quarterbacks, including Patrick Mahomes, have from a pass-catching and offensive structure standpoint. My biggest thing here is when you look at these two guys and you look at the way these teams are built, you have a quarterback at the top of the sport that's getting paid at the top of the sport, and you have a guy that's making absolutely nothing. So you have two different team-building propositions. You can build it around the quarterback and have to skimp in certain areas and understand, okay, the quarterback is going to lift the weaknesses in other areas of our roster. On the 49ers side of it, you have, okay, the quarterback is making nothing, 
so we can build a super team around the quarterback. So they're very different builds and very different philosophies. So now we get to a point in the playoffs where you have to, where you get to answer the question, can you win that way? Can you have a quarterback who is sort of a role player within the team or do approaches from opposing defenses get so focused on making that guy beat you in the postseason that it's actually really hard when you build your team that way? And that's why I think the game plans from the Packers and the Lions have been so interesting. Because for me, when I'm looking at this and I think about the Niners offense in general, my first thought is I'd rather lose four and a half yards of carry at a time than let them dice me up with explosive plays. So I'd rather play with lighter boxes, kind of tempt them into running the ball consistently rather than loading it up and allowing them to throw the ball. What's funny, though, is that both of the teams that they've played in the playoffs have not done that. They have loaded it up. They have played with base defense, and they brought a lot of pressures with the Packers. It was these 5-0 looks. So they have tempted Brock Purdy to beat them, and it has been a mixed bag. He's played well in some stretches. He's made enough plays, but he hasn't played his best football. So I think that, to me, is the most interesting part about this entire game, is that the Chiefs do the same thing, and the Chiefs are the best defense that they will have played in the playoffs. Is this going to be enough? where if your quarterback is just sort of another guy on the roster, when we get to the highest stage against a really good defense and they're focused on making him beat you, can he do it? And I think that is the biggest question yeah. entering this game for me. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a great point. But if you look at Brock through through the playoff games, like obviously bye week, then rust in the first half against Green Bay, led him back to a victory against Green Bay in the second half. Start of the Detroit Lions game, he was awful in the first half. Like too, too many nerves. And then he was 14-16, 170, and touchdown in the second half so it's like the battle of halves for me he's got to figure out a way and we talked about this a little bit on NFL Network last night it's he's got to find a way to start fast and whether that's a first 15 script whether that's screens to Debo whether that's uh bootlegs whether that's under center runs which the Chiefs struggle in they're the fourth most uh they're the fourth worst uh defense in all of the NFL, giving up under center runs. They've given up over 1,900 yards under center. So I imagine that Kyle Shanahan understands that, hey, Brock needs to fill himself into this game, okay? And so I imagine that they're going to go 22 personnel, two backs, two tight ends, and 13 personnel and get Chiefs and big people. Because Spags in general, over the last three or four years, his whole menu when you're facing 22 personnel or 13 personnel on offense, it shrinks. It shrinks. Not as much pressure more coverage, less ways to to you know skin the cat is, is like what he used to say. Like, hey, if they're playing heavy personnel, we just want to play one or two coverages and we're going to have one or two blitzes. So I can imagine that early in the game to let Purdy get settled, to also protect that right side of the offensive line. Really, the center from the right side has been not good at all. And that's the biggest thing with this top five pass defense from the Chiefs is I think that the key of the game is going to be how can Spags affect that right side of the of the of the 49ers offensive line? Is it from pressure? Is it from secondary pressure like the double edge stuff? Is it from four man front? Is it from overloading that side to make sure those three are one on one at all times? Is it from chipping and thumping on each side, which this 49ers do a decent amount of, but they like to get an empty a lot. And I just can't imagine, other than some quick game, that they're going to leave these five offensive linemen really you know Trent Williams can do your thing really the four offensive linemen just alone on island so it'll be interesting to see how he comes out with his first 15 because Shanahan is a really good first 15 scripter 
And because that the halftime is a lot longer, I would expect him to have a first 15 in the second half as well. Because halftime is almost twice as long. We did it in New Orleans. We went into the locker room and we took our pads off because it's like 20, 25 minute long halftime. We reinstalled another first 15 script in 2009. And we went out and and obviously everyone knows the that we won that game, but we, we played a lot better in the second half. So it's going to be, in my opinion, come down to how Cal Shanahan handles that right side of the offensive line for himself. I think that's a great point. And if you look at the way the Lions did it, it was a lot of overload pressures. It was a lot of five-man fronts, a lot of guys mugged up. I mean, they were not afraid to blitz. And I think that the Chiefs are going to be the exact same way, even if it's fewer blitz looks, fewer pressure looks that they can get into out of that heavy personnel, because that's what the Chiefs have done. They've matched those big bodies with big bodies consistently. And I think that we're going to see a very similar approach. I'm glad you mentioned the 2009 game and, and maybe the difference in the way that you guys handled it. I want to talk about just preparation and game planning for the Super Bowl compared to any other game you're going to play. Obviously, you get two weeks to prepare. It's the biggest game a lot of these guys are ever going to play in. What is different about Super Bowl preparation compared to just a normal, even playoff game that guys are going to be in? Everything. Everything, because you have two weeks, right? I mean, it, it, it is. It's, it's just you have two weeks, and some guys like it. Some guys would just rather play. And But I do think you need the two weeks because – the first week, the first half of the week, I would say like you win on championship Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, for the most part is just like getting all the other stuff other than football figured out. How are we getting to the game? How are we doing hotels? How many family members are we bringing? Who's going to get the to buy the tickets? Where do we need to buy these tickets? Where do we want the top row or the bottom row? Like all this stuff. And it's just constant. The teams do a really good job of planning it out and having a checklist for you. So you can literally get everything done. So everything other than football should be, and every teams that I've known that have gone through should be done by Wednesday. So then Wednesday, you probably start game planning a little bit. And 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 I know the Chiefs, I'm not sure. I, I hadn't heard about the 49ers. The Chiefs install the entire game plan the first week. Like 99%, 90% of the of the game plan, they'll they'll they'll, they'll do. From, from when they leave um, on, on Sunday, like Thursday will be a Wednesday. Friday will be a Thursday game plan, which is third down. Saturday will be a Friday, and then they leave Sunday to go to, to Vegas. And um, that's exactly what we did in New Orleans. I think that's great. I think it's also you get a lot of your film work done the first week. And the second week is you maybe add a few things, a few wrinkles that you just from watching film. I, I think the biggest thing you don't want to do as a player is you don't want to overwatch or overthink things like try to make it as normal of a week as possible even though it's not normal whatsoever you're pulled in so many different directions you got super bowl opening night Thirty thousand people were in the in the stands last night you have to be there for an hour like all this stuff and i think the people and teams that embrace it i think have shown a tendency to just like not just hey enjoy you're here or complain about it like yeah look we have to do this like like it's it's asked of us and then um, you, you know, the rest of the week is, is Tuesday off day. And then, and then they'll be into their normal game week prep. Like the, the, the chiefs were in full pads yesterday. They have a bonus Monday, which Andy Reid is, is usually pretty, uh, pretty keen on doing on bye weeks. And that's why he's, he's so good coming off buys. I mean, they're in full pads. Hey, explain, explain that. What, what's a bonus week. Monday on a bye week? Yeah. So, so like if you're coming off bye week and, and, and Andy Reid's done this, for as long as I can remember, he did it all three years I was there. Like he likes to give teams and, and guys the entire week off of bye week. 
Okay, so say you play Sunday, we'll be like, hey, we'll see you, we'll see you Monday, next Monday. And that Monday, usually on weeks like that you're playing and you don't get a bye week, that Monday and Tuesday are prep days. They're not practice days. You get an off day Tuesday, Monday's like, hey, come in, watch the film, get a workout in. Really, what they do is they call it a bonus Monday. You you steal an extra practice, but it's only about an hour, 15, hour 20, and you're going full speed. You're getting the cobwebs out. And then you get get off on Tuesday, and then you're back into normal prep base downs on Wednesday. So he steals a practice, but it's also a way to get the cobwebs out because you've been gone six, seven days. It's a little bit of install. We'll give you 20 base plays that we're going to run, maybe a, a sneak preview of third down. And so he calls it bonus Monday, which they just steal an extra day of practice. That's so interesting. So if you were trying to pinpoint – the advantages that Andy Reid creates and the, the reasons behind the success he's had coming out of the bye week. Do you think it's more about the structure of that week or do you think it's more about the game plan stuff that he's able to cook up with that extra time? I think it's both. I think the biggest thing for guys on bye weeks and every team I've been around does it differently is you want to just get away from ball. For just like a little now, you won't get away from ball in in Super Bowl week. You're going to constantly be, but sometimes if it's like week ten and you've just been going and going and going, like sometimes it's just good to just like reset. And I think that's what his players do. And honestly, the coaches too. They'll get two or three days off. They just get a breath. They can come up from life. They can say hi to their kids. They can do all this stuff to make themselves feel like an actual human being and a person of, of this society. And I think that's I think that's big. But also, I think Andy's always in the back of his mind thinking about and always staying one or two steps ahead. So he is getting that advantage on teams where he is prepping and it, it, it might just be at his own pace. He doesn't have to rush through the film a little bit more. And I think all that stuff matters when you break it all down. When you're talking about Andy Reid just as a planner and as a schemer and as somebody who's preparing for a team he's going to play against, we've talked about a little bit about this, but I think it's worth bringing up now that they're on this stage again. What stood out to you about some of the insights that he would have as he was planning for opposing defenses? Is it defensive structure? Is it situational awareness? Is it how to take advantage of maybe one or two weak links on a defensive unit? Where do his insights and just observations consistently give his team advantages? Well, I think he's always on the cutting edge of staying new in terms of like, let's, let's not just be stuck in 10 years ago just to be stuck in what they did 10 years ago. Like the game is constantly evolving and I think that's where he separates himself. He's not afraid to try new things. The biggest thing I, I with Andy is like if if a player like a Mahomes or a Kelsey or somebody that he trusts be like, "Hey, like I think we should like maybe try this." He is always 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 taking advice, not advice, but taking plays from players and be like, "Yeah, let's do that." I mean, like I remember when I was there and that was like what I felt like I could do the best was like to try and like come up with red zone plays or like stuff like this. And every once in a while, I'd be like, yeah, let's try, let's do it. Let's try it. Let's practice. Let's fill it out. Even if it was foreign to him, he never said no. He's like, well, let me think about it. Like I, that could be a good idea. But I also think he's so good at finding weaknesses in defensive personnel groupings. So if you're in base personnel on offense and they're going to be in nickel, like, of course, he's going to run. But there's there, there's layers to this that, hey, if we're in big people and we can spread you out to empty, we know for a fact it's going to come down to 90% of the time you're playing cover three. So let's get in 22 personnel, motion out to empty and be, have a cover three beater. I mean, there's also and that's just one play. 
So I think he's constantly looking at defensive personnel groupings. And honestly, when you had the team that he had with with Tyreek, uh, I mean, you could draw up anything and it would work with the speed. I mean, it's, it was it was an it was insane. He couldn't miss. But I think that's sort of where he's always got the head up is like he's always open to someone else's ideas and it better be a good one. Um, or he'll call you out on it and be like, no, that place sucks. Like, no, Chase, like they rethink that. Like, no way. Like, nah, no. And and I just think it's a cool way to to feel like as a player, especially that you're part of this game planning situation. Yeah, you're empowered. Like you feel an urgency to be creative and to be a part of it just because you are empowered in that way. If Andy Reid wins a Super Bowl this weekend, he will have three. There are only, in NFL history, one, two, three, four coaches who've won at least three Super Bowls. Bill Belichick has six, obviously. Chuck Knoll has four. And Bill Walsh and Joe Gibbs have three. So he will be one of five coaches ever that has won three Super Bowls if they do that this weekend. You played for him for multiple years. What has it been like to kind of watch him just get his due and kind of rise to this level in football history as somebody who spent years with him, who has an appreciation for him, who really respects the way that he's gone about this. It's been so cool because you look at Philly. I mean, they, they never got a chance. They got to a bunch of NFC playoff games or championship games and never really got their chance. And then it comes comes here after a 2-14 and 14 year um, in 2012 for the Chiefs. He comes there in 2013. And it was just cool because – like I was able and lucky enough to be able to get recruited by John Dorsey and Andy Reid to come there. And honestly, people asked me like, why did you go there? Like, cause they were two and 14. You weren't sure what they were going to do. And I'm like, Andy Reid, like it's Andy Reid. He's a quarterback whisperer. Like everything that about him just states that he's all about quarterbacks and developing quarterbacks. So when we got there, it was cool to see sort of the blocks and the culture building put in place in 2013 to what led them to obviously like the thing that changed his dynamic was Patrick Mahomes. Right. But I do think the way he coaches Patrick Mahomes is a way that empowers him. And also like he probably lets Mahomes even early on in his career do more than any other quarterback he's been around because Mahomes showed the trust that it needs to be able to have that. And so I think it's, he's made Andy Reid a better coach, obviously, but I think what Andy has done with him and just given him sort of the reign and let him show his personality has been second to none. And, and then so to, to win three Super Bowls, especially after uh, like really a Hall of Fame career almost in, in Philly that you had to come and to be 11 years now in KC, it, it's just so cool because I, I was able to get a peek under the curtain right when it started. And I saw how that place was built and it was built with high character guys, people that you trust, and obviously with Andy Reid at the forefront. Let's talk about some of the specifics there, because I think that we throw around the word culture all the time in the NFL and how you build a culture and how you reshape a culture. What about those early years? What specifically do you think were the foundational aspects that allowed that shift to take place? Well, I think discipline. I think discipline was, and I'm not saying like, oh, like don't do that. It was just like, hey, we got to be a disciplined football team because what we've been doing has not been working. And I think guys at that time, like Eric Berry, Derek Johnson, even Alex, the leaders on that team, and Jamal Charles, like they were hungry for somebody to come in and to oversee what they're doing and to lead them out of misery. Because this 2-14, and 14, like Javon Belcher, the, the suicide, like all that stuff happened. And it was just a tragic year 
for Chiefs and Chiefs fans and and, and everyone. And and I mean, I'll still remember like you know the owner Clark Hunt flying up to the Philadelphia airport like the day Andy was fired, I think, or the day after he was fired and said, I'm not leaving until you come back here. So that culture from the owner that says, hey, I'm not giving up because I know you are the person that I need to turn this around. And then just empowering your guys and and getting rid of the bad apples because there were some bad apples on that team because one or two bad apples can turn a team really quickly. And, and if your locker room's not great and you don't have the guys with high character, like he did that. He made a lot of trades his first year. He got his right guys in. And Dorsey was a big part of that. And Veach obviously overtook that when he was there. But Andy oversaw a lot of the personnel decision. So he got his guys in. He understood that. And we started 9-0 and in 2013. And it was like, okay, this is the right way to go. And, and he did it with building that locker room. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You guys won a Super Bowl in 2009, which was, I believe, your first year in the NFL, which is insane. (laughs) The fact that your first year in the league, you guys end up winning a Super Bowl after you go to New Orleans. This is a very simple question, but I I really am curious about it. What does it feel like when you're sitting there and the confetti's falling, you're on the field and you get there? Like, what is that moment actually like? Honestly, like... It was such a whirlwind year for me because I was a rookie. I was third string. I was the co- go get the coffee for Mark Brunell, who was twice my age, and and Breeze, and just all these jokes. Like I was just, I was just happy to be there. And it was such a cool experience because, like, you know, you start. We started thirteen and zero that year, and it was just wild from the start and we just kept rolling off wins and then we lost to Dallas and then we lost to somebody else and then we rested our starters the last week of the year because we had the one seed we were 13 and three we're like oh my god we just lost three in a row but we hosted a divisional game I think against Arizona or Detroit smashed them the the Minnesota uh NFC championship game uh, Brett Favre played lights out and we barely won on a kick that game It, it was just it was crazy and then when you get to the Super Bowl like you just, I was out there just enjoying it. Like, I, and then when Tracy Porter got that pick six off Peyton Manning, and that was the moment that we were like, "Holy cow, we are literally about to win a Super Bowl!" But up until that point, you're just so nervous, especially because I feel like I've always been more nervous on the sideline and what we're doing because I'm not the one playing, and so you're always constantly like, obviously more nervous with with being on the sideline but but i think the confetti started to fall and then you have your family on the field and then you just go back to the hotel you have a massive massive party with all these huge artists um and and people and family and it's it's almost a relief you know what i mean like it's almost a relief from all the hard work that you put in and everything that happened and i think that was the biggest deal for me was like man that was so cool but as i got older in my career like I, I almost was like, I wish I would have enjoyed it more and knew how hard it is 
to get to that point because I've been a part of some awful playoff losses, bro. Like Minnesota Miracle um, was a part of like two, literally the top two comebacks in NFL playoff history. I was on the other team. I was on the other team. Like the the 2013 Indy versus KC game, we were down. That we were up 27. We lost, and then and then we that was the Andrew Luck jump through the end zone game, and then the Jacksonville Jaguars Chargers game. We we're up 28 and a half. Like I've been a part of some bad playoff losses, and so how hard and how much of luck you need to get there. Like I just think it gives you a deeper appreciation of it. I mean, you're young though. Whoa, you're 23, 24. Like you, you're not expected to have that level of perspective yeah. at that age. It's impossible. There's absolutely no way to no. properly appreciate yeah. that in the moment. It's, it was a long time ago, but I'm curious. Like, who turned up the most in the day, two days after the game? Like, whose behavior do you remember in a good way after that Super Bowl was over? Okay, I've only told this story one other time, uh, and I don't think it was was on on camera. But we did the Super Bowl parade. And and in New Orleans, man, they know how to throw parades. Yeah, there's a parade every right? day. Like <laughs> Mardi Gras season, and we got a chance. Which, if you're in New Orleans, I, st- I still don't quite understand it. But like Mardi Gras, is a huge thing, like almost as big as the Saints, and they spent all year getting these floats ready. Uh, Bacchus and Demian, all these crews, and we actually got to ride on the Mardi Gras floats through the city of New Orleans. And I'm telling you the. Uh, I mean, the drinks are flowing at 7 a.m. of parade day. You're you're having pops all day long. Um, and <laughs> we were on a float. It was the quarterbacks and the offensive line. And um, that's all. And so it was there was like a king chair. I think we were like on Bacchus or some and Drew was sitting up like high up above the ground in a king's chair, like throwing beads. You know, and it's me and Mark Brunell on either side of them, all the offensive line on the front. And I just remember the entire parade. It, first of all, the, the parade route was like two miles around the city. It took us like seven hours, eight hours to get through it. So you're constantly just like, yeah, there was, I mean, I, I don't know. There wasn't a million people on the, on the streets, but it sure felt like it. And the only thing I can remember from all seven hours is Mark Brunell coming up to me and be like, hey, man we better hold on to Drew. Like he's going to fall off this float. And, and because he's throwing it and he's having a good time. And so me and Mark Renault the whole time, I mean, I've looked through footage. We're just holding on to his sweatshirt and his Jersey. So Drew, Drew, Drew had a great night, but I feel like everyone in that city had a heck of a night on parade night. Yeah, a party in New Orleans, a Super Bowl parade in New Orleans. Uh, the fact that you're taking it up a notch from what New Orleans feels like every other day of the year. I love New Orleans. One of my favorite places in America. I have my bachelor party oh, there. Amazing. I've had nothing but good experiences there. But being there for a Super Bowl parade uh, just seems to be an entirely different level. That's a fantastic story. Good for Drew Brees, man. At that point in his career, everything that he had been through, you know, what it was like to kind of help oh, resurrect that franchise, going to the city after Katrina. like He could do anything he wanted during that parade, and I would completely understand. Anything. Yeah, we, we got some not-so-safe not safe for work stories that we'll, we'll talk about another time about that. But it was, it was, a fun, it was a fun night, man, to say the least. Uh, Chase Daniel, very much appreciate the time, sir. I've appreciated it all year. I've had such a good time doing this and uh, now we're here. We are on the eve of the biggest game of the season and it is going to be a good one. You are all over NFL network and everywhere else this week. So please get some rest while you can. And uh, I'm sure we'll see you here in the next couple of days. Joining us now is longtime NFL offensive lineman and friend of the show, Mitchell Schwartz. Mitch, how you doing, man? 
I'm doing good. I'm not in Vegas. So I've been getting all my sleep. How are you doing? Uh, I'm sleeping terribly. I, I've gotten to the point in my life where I cannot sleep in hotels anymore for some reason. I don't know why. And that's going to be a problem if I continue to try to travel for work. Is it because you and Nate are sharing a queen bed? or That's exactly right. Yeah, his 6'5 frame and, and, and me after a bunch of holiday eating. It's not going very well on the same bed. All right, let's, uh, let's chat all things Chiefs here because it's been a fascinating season. And just the ups and the downs and the path to this point. I wanted to ask you sort of a question that I asked Nate Taylor yesterday. Was there a moment during this year when you were watching them that you just felt like this ending or getting to this moment was not going to be a possibility? Yeah, after the Raiders game, it just seemed like too much had eroded that was kind of the core foundational pieces of Kansas City. Guys were making mistakes at every position. It bled into Pat, which is very atypical for him to kind of let any of those things around him uh, bleed into his play. But I think he was struggling in terms of his trust, his uh, ability to like know where guys are going to be, get them the ball. They're going to do the right things. He wasn't getting protection up front the way he's used to. Guys were letting him down in the skill positions. And the defense was playing obviously not this good. They were still playing good ball, but we see it all the time that as offense wanes, it's really hard for defenses to kind of keep up the pace of how good they're playing. They're so emotional and it's such a charged uh, side of the ball that, you know, if you're not getting the support from the offense, it can uh, look a little bit worse. And so, yeah, that Raiders game was kind of the, I don't know, nadir of the the Andy Reid, Patrick Mahomes Chiefs. And it just didn't seem like they were going to be able to go into the playoffs because that solidified that the Chiefs weren't getting the one seed. I didn't think the Chiefs were going to be able to win three games in a row against good or better teams, uh, one or two of which were going to have to be on the road. And it just didn't seem like that was in the cards for the Chiefs this year. But, you know, credit to the team. They've turned it around. And I think this is a much different team now than what we were looking at five or six weeks ago. Okay, so that's what I wanted to ask you. What do you think have been the most important changes to take them from the team that we saw on Christmas against the Raiders to the one that we saw last week in Baltimore or even previously in the playoffs? I think the single biggest change, at least in terms of, you know, this sounds like a cop-out because I'm a former offensive lineman, but I think the offensive line is playing so much better than they were I don't think it's a cop-out at all. I think that that is something that we should drill down on because that that when we were looking at why they struggled earlier in the season, everyone was talking about the pass catchers, and I'm just like, that, that was not an issue last year. They were throwing the ball to Juju Smith-Schuster and McCole Hardman <laughs> in the same group of guys, but the line was so much more cohesive and playing at such a high level last year. And you watch guys... I think collectively and even individual, individually with some of them, it's like things have just taken a step back, but it doesn't feel that way. It feels like they're playing their best ball right now. So I don't think that's misguided at all, independent of your background. <laughs> yeah, I think each guy has gotten better over this time period. And I don't know, it kind of ties into what I've seen from Pat as well. That just seems like a simplification of process. You know, what am I supposed mm-hmm. to do on this play? This is my little checklist of things I need to get done. And I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. It doesn't matter you know, if you're Trey Smith at right guard and, you know, Jawan's setting super deep and you're supposed to pass off all these ETs, maybe there's a chance that you feel like, oh man, I'm really getting screwed by my right tackle. He's setting super deep. The defensive end's coming to pick me. Maybe I need to do something different because of him. Like, no, like you got to trust that your tackle is going to deliver that end to you. You got to block your defensive tackle. If you're feeling, you know, we call it a fish rush, but basically the guy's not giving you a real rush. Then you can start to look around and figure out where the twist is coming from. Just simplify that process. Do my job and trust the guy next to me. And that's what we've seen from Pat as well in terms of trusting his drop back, trusting the rhythm of the offense, trusting if he gets the ball to the guy, he's going to make the play. But it all starts up front with the offensive line. I mean, that was the big takeaway from Tampa Bay Super Bowl, I guess, 
three calendar years before Super Bowls an app, uh, ago now is that the operation doesn't work if the O-line doesn't have a certain level of play. And through the first 15 games of the season, the O-line didn't have the level of play week in and week out that we've come to expect of the Kansas City Chiefs. So as those guys have picked their games up, it's allowed everyone around the team, uh, especially on the offensive side, to play better. And this had been a team that could not overcome critical mistakes. You know, they had made mistakes throughout the course of the game and the team wasn't good enough to overcome them especially against good teams well now the team is good enough to overcome those mistakes because you look at the buffalo game and the mccall fumble that was a debilitating you know play that as of a month ago would have sunk the game and you look at you know last week back-to-back holding calls one of which is the screen touchdown to rasheed rice well that used to be the differentiator in the game but now the team is good enough to overcome mistakes and you can't play perfect football especially against, against good teams but they're playing so much better that they can overcome them and that's just what they weren't able to do early in the season combined with of course making a few more of those mistakes as well my untra- untrained eye, someone who's not as familiar with just the team and the operation, I, Trey Smith is the guy who has stood out to me the most. You watch the way that he played in that Miami game, and I know that front was banged up, but he had Christian Wilkins for a good chunk of that game, and I think that he played fantastic football. The physicality, what he was doing in pass protection, would you say that he is the guy who has stood out to you the most compared to the way that he's played in the playoffs compared to what the regular season looked like? No, I think you're right, and I think you know if you probably asked him, he would – say he didn't feel like he played up to his standards throughout the course of the regular season, especially I would say in the, in the past game. I think, you know, he got talked about a lot that rookie year because he played so well for being a six rounder, of course. And it was kind of compared to, you know, his true talent level versus where he was drafted because of some injury and, and health stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, I think his pass protection got a little bit overrated early because of the full package of the physicality. And we just kind of went along with the fact that he was a really good player. He's graded well. He's always been pretty good on film, but Especially when you compare it to a guy like Tooney, who's, you know, that's his strength is pass protection. And as a team that throws the ball 60 plus percent of the time, you know, Trey's pass protection seemed to take a step back this year. But, you know, Creed's did a little bit as well. And, you know, the two tackles were trying to figure things out in their own right of how to kind of blend into what the Kansas City offense asks of offensive tackles. And so, yeah, I think Trey's the guy that's probably made the biggest leap. But also you look at, you know, a guy like Jawan, he has played a lot better over this past 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 month or so. And, you know, he'll still be good for a penalty every now and again. But the <laughs> procedural penalties have come way down and guys are going to hold. That, that's the nature of the game. And obviously this matchup against Bosa, you know, he's probably going to have a, a bad play or two because of who he's going against. But, um, yeah, I'd say that right side in particular has played a lot better and, you know, I don't know if it's getting healthy. You know, it could be as simple as that. It could be that, you know, these guys, Jawan's in his fifth year, first the Kansas City, Trey's still young in his third year. But it is really difficult to be that physical game in and game out every single time, especially when the teams you're going against kind of circle you when the schedule first comes out and, hey, we get a shot at the Chiefs. There is that element of, like, raising your game, raising your focus, and kind of knowing, like, all right, I only got a ball out for four more weeks. It's the playoffs now. I can kind of lock in here. Whatever's hurting me, it's it's only a month away from not hurting me anymore. And so it seems like everybody has kind of taken that onus on them to raise their game, raise their focus level, raise their uh, physicality, and, you know, we're seeing the dividends. They were struggling in the run game, and I think that just speaks to just the lack of cohesion that was happening across the unit. Has there been anything schematically a paring down of the amount of runs they're trying? Yeah, it does seem like they've kind of simplified the playbook just a little bit because the run game is pretty simple. There's, you know, there's gap, there's zone, there's man. And then from those, that's where everything kind of sprouts from there. And Kansas City is very particular about the angles that you play on and where the running back is in relation to where you are 
how inside zone looks different in the shotgun versus under center, how, you know, mid zone looks different here and there. If, is there a jet sweep? Is there a counter motion? Is there an RPO? Is it, and so you get into like, okay, it's three main concepts, but now you're tagging all these little things and you're tr- trying to identify like, okay, on, you know, 18 this versus 14 that it could be drastically different, even though all the rules are the same, but the angles are so different and you have to be locked in. And so, you know, I think there was an element that with again, Jawan and Donovan are the two new guys. And then uh, Donovan gets hurt and you got a rookie coming in at left tackle of trying to figure out what those tackles are best at and how they're best, you know, suited to this offense. And there were some weird kind of assignment related things that usually you don't see from especially these three interior linemen. And so I think they kind of went back to what are we best at lining up going forward, double teaming guys and kicking people's ass and just getting back to that because the offense, even though it's not the downfield offense that it used to be, uh, you know, Pat's yards per attempt is like the lowest ever. It's still an offense that gets, I feel like guarded as such. And so there's space and there's room in the run game to make hay. And especially if you're able to displace guys vertically and get that extra, you know, two yards of push, well, that can cut linebackers out of gaps. That can do so much for the run game. And I think they just kind of got down to what do we do best? Putting four hands on a defensive lineman and going to work and letting our big bruiser of a running back, you know, be physical and try to run people over. So I think that went back to, again, what came out of that Raiders game. Like, let's just get back to playing simple football and executing it and playing it well. And, you know, I think they've they've done that in the run game as well. You were obviously a part of a team the last time they played the Niners in the Super Bowl. I'm wondering how much do you think the approach to that Niners defense carries over to this version of the San Francisco team they're going to be playing this year? I think there's some elements because I think Bosa is kind of the the, the key point of the Probably defense. I was picking out a little bit. Yeah, he's still there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is. But the defensive line is, to my eye, not playing anywhere near the level of what that you know 2019 San Francisco defense line was was looking like. And you know, I mentioned this last week. We felt like if we could do our job up front. There was hay to be made back then. You know, they had Sherman. Their secondary was playing really well. But we felt like that secondary was propped up by how good the defensive line was. You know, they had eight deep. They could throw at you. You know, my job, I had to block Armstead on early downs. He was, you know, an outside early down guy. He'd kick inside the three tech and then D Ford would come out. Luckily for me, Bosa lined up across from me only once the entire game. And it was on an option play that I got to leave him alone and not touch him. So I literally didn't touch Bosa all game, which makes it funnier when people complain that I was the one holding all game. Uh, so he stayed over on Fisher's side and I was very grateful for them about that. But you had DeForest Buckner in the middle. You know, you had then Armstead comes in and they just had waves of quality players that could throw at you. And the names are there now, but the production has not been there, especially these two playoff games. And so the focus then was so much about eight deep on the defensive line, the defensive line, defensive line. And it was two weeks of watching a bunch of film. And (laughs) basically all their film was just defensive line highlights. You couldn't avoid it. And just like being super nervous and stressed out about it. And so now I think it's still an offensive line focus. You know, as we mentioned 10 minutes ago, the biggest difference in the Chiefs from six weeks ago is the offensive line. So they have to keep doing their job. And you still got Hargrave, you still got Armstead and, you know, Chase Young. We've all seen the clips of the backside of runs and stuff like that, but still a very kind of freak show athlete in the past game. And so the onus is still on the O-line to show up and it's still on Coach Reed to kind of do all the things that he would do normally to help the offensive line to give them an easier job. Because, you know, as, as good as these linebackers are, 
okay. I mean, linebackers in the past game, you know, can only kind of take you so far as a defense. And so if the offensive line is able to do their job up front, if Coach Reed is able to, uh, you know, kind of put Bosa in that little bit of a blender that he had him in a couple years ago and make life uncertain and difficult and what's going to happen next? You know, can I get off as hard as I want to because the jet sweep might go by me or a screen might come behind me or I might get cut or this guy might chip me. If you put that seed of doubt into these defensive line mind, that helps the offensive line. And that's what Coach Reed is so good at. And I would imagine the carryover of doing everything we can to still run as much of our offense as we want to, but helping the O-line as much as we can along the way as well, uh, I would imagine is going to be a, a key, you know, kind of schematic coaching point. It was funny watching, rewatching the 2022 game this week and trying to pick up on little things that they did that maybe would carry over. And you watch some of the run concepts that the Chiefs were using against the Niners even last year, and there's a lot of carryover to what the Packers and the Lions did over the last couple of weeks. I think they ran maybe one pin pull play that I saw that was similar to a lot of the stuff we've seen over the last two weeks. But the two McColl touchdowns on jet sweeps, in when you think about how the play actually unfolds, it's essentially a pin pull play. There, there's no difference in the actual structure of it. So that's why if you're trying to like build an optimistic case for what the Chiefs plan might be on offense, the stuff they were doing last year falls directly in line with the things that the Niners have struggled with over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, and, and I'll take it a step further. The jet sweep plays are so awesome because you don't even have to block the best player on the defense. Yeah. You can let you know <laughs> his stance true. and yeah. his get off just block himself. And so on a traditional pin pull, you know, you're relying on a Kelsey or maybe one of your wide receivers to at least get in the way long enough to make it valid. But on jet sweeps, you're just straight up saying like, you're going to be wrong on this play. Uh, you know, there's nothing you can do that's correct. You're going to get in your stance. You're going to get coiled up. You know, you spent your entire offseason trying to get your 10-yard split from 161 to 157, and we're going to use that against you. And so, yeah, every single time that you can not block the best player on the field and have a productive play, like that's so amazing for an offense, and that's great for all the linemen because then they don't have to go hit him either because it's not like I want to go drive block Nick Bosa. You know, that's like probably the, the worst assignment of all time. So, yeah, I think that's kind of what I was getting to is making – Bosa wrong with whatever he wants to try to do you know if he wants to try to get off as much as he can and get a field get a field get a field well there's a whole package of plays that are going to make him wrong every time he's trying to do that and then once he starts to lessen that first step just a little bit that's when the pass game comes out and that's when Jawan now has the advantage in terms of getting to his spot and not feeling as rushed and not feeling like the the edge of the pocket is collapsing and so that's the kind of that game within the game that is not player versus player, it's Coach Reed versus player. And historically, he's obviously been the best at that. Yeah, he gets a lot, of, he gets the upper hand in a lot of those matchups. But watching Mahomes this year, even on the TV copy, the amount of work he's doing at the line of scrimmage just feels like it's more expansive and there's more being put on his shoulders than ever before. And I don't know if you've talked to people there or even just from watching the TV copy and some of the things he's saying. What sort of difference is the mental load that he's undertaking now compared to even the last year that you played with him? Yeah, it's a lot different. It's a lot more. I would say when I was still there, there was an emphasis on trying to make run and pass look very similar. But at the end of the day, I mean, you'd rather get into your stuff. And even if the defense maybe knows what the play is, you be confident in yourself. And this is the offensive line coaching point of, is he tipping stances or is he giving away, you know, a run past hell in his stance? I'd rather Nick Bosa know it's a pass and me be comfortable in my stance and feel like I can get to my spot as opposed to me being uncomfortable and him still being a freak show athlete off the edge and, and not having that confidence. So 
what I've seen at the line of scrimmage this year is trying to make every single play look similar, trying to make all the calls look similar. Uh, you know, kind of like you mentioned, there's a lot of verbiage going on at the line of scrimmage, you know, do we know if this is run verbiage? Is it pass verbiage? Am I using similar stuff in the run game and the pass game and trying to throw them off? Um, you know, you hear a lot of different numbers, you hear a lot of different code words, a lot of different colors, and you don't know what those are supposed to be and, and who those are meant for. And so, yeah, the, what he's doing at the line of scrimmage, I think it's taken a step. It's all stuff that he kind of knew about before, but now it's just more of an emphasis on him to actually do it. And also your center is now in his third year. You know, this is stuff that yeah. three years ago I was off the team, but Pat had to pick up the slack a little bit because he no longer had veteran centers. You know, he had Mitch Morse early, who was pretty good at that stuff. And then he had Austin uh, Ryder, who's also really good at that stuff. And so it's always been a quarterback directed pass scheme. You know, Pat's the one with the keys. He's the one that's able to see, you know, is it a man's own tell? Is it inside leverage, outside leverage? Does that mean it's a certain blitz package because of that? Um, but the center was always really good at helping out with that. Well, now you've got a rookie three years ago in Creed and Pat has to take on more of the onus. So I think that has been part of speeding up his kind of at the line uh, acumen because you know, when the, when the quarterback, you, when you got a fully on his shoulders, um, you know, you do have to take a little more pride in it. And then, like I said, as much as you want to try to make everything as neutral and balanced and not obvious as possible to the defense, you know, if you're going up to the line of scrimmage and pointing out guys only in the pass game, they're going to catch on to that. They're going to understand that. Yeah. If you're saying certain words in only certain situations, they have the TV copy. They can hear everything. They're going to pick up on that. And so making everything look as consistent as possible in terms of operation, uh, I think that's been the biggest indicator of him at the line of scrimmage. And it's been really cool to see because to your point, it's it's a lot. He does a lot on every single play. How much is relaying information to the line and the offense in general? And how much is him changing protections or checking in and out of place, if you had to guess? I would say there's... I think the relaying comes more in terms of blitz packages, in terms of, you know, it's this pressure or it's this, if it's man versus zone, stuff like that. Um, you know, for the most part, what the structure of the defense is doesn't matter, or the defensive front at least doesn't matter as much to the offensive line because our rules are kind of independent of that. Um, but then this is kind of the Chiefs genius of Coach Heck as well, the offensive line coach, is he's so good at teaching you scheme and defensive structure and where guys are supposed to be. Because, again, of the space that's created, you know, there's defensive linemen that line up in certain positions and there's linebackers that line up in certain spots. And sometimes you have to disregard a guy who looks like he's kind of in the box playing the run, but he's just trying to play in the middle of the slot in the three by one formation. And he's trying to middle that. And if you're, you know, the center and you're, you're Creed and you're locked in on, all right, it's a certain formation. I know that, you know, we have a pass option out there. It's going to be an inside zone. And that middle uh, or the, the you know the slot guy of the three receivers is going to actually pull the linebacker out of the uh, of the picture. I know it's this coverage because this guy's aligned here, that guy's aligned here, and that linebacker has to leave. As opposed to knowing like if they're aligned up here and it's man coverage, he's probably going to step into the box and we have to account for him. So again, this gets to like the complexity of the offense and understanding uh, spots, understanding space, who to account for, who not to account for. And that's where I think this team is really good. And so, yeah, Pat's able to kind of call out all those things. But I think uh, the most communication obviously happens on the pass plays and, and the protections and his ability to you know see what's outside of the box. And, and relay that to the offensive line. But there is some value in the run game as well to understand the structure of the defense. How different do you think his acumen, just ability to kind of win the game between his ears is now compared to what it was four years ago? 
Oh, I think it's drastically better. And I don't think it necessarily has as much obviousness on the field. You know, he was <laughs> pretty good back then and pretty successful. I mean, it, he was winning, he was <laughs> smashing records and winning MVP awards five years ago. But still, when you talk to people, I was talking to a coach last night. And he said he's gotten to a point now where he's doing the Peyton Manning, Philip Rivers stuff where he's like correcting defensive players. He's like, I actually are lined up a little bit wrong here. You want to be like a little six inches over to the left. <laughs> and the fact that we've combined that with what he is physically is fucking terrifying. Like, I just don't know what the ceiling of a guy with those two things working in concert with another with each other ends up looking like. I truly can't comprehend it. Dude, I've I've said this since he was young. He's the mental side is only going to get better. There's no point in his career where he's going to be less good mentally than he was the year before. And <laughs> when you look at what he is as a player and then you compare him, and of course the comparisons are to like Brady and Breeze and Manning in terms of the mental aspect, we're not comparing 28-year-old Pat with 28-year-old Manning with 28-year-old Brady. We're comparing 28-year-old Pat with 38-year-old Drew Brees and 44-year-old Tom Brady and 37-year-old Peyton Manning. And so he's similar enough to those guys mentally at this stage. And think of the wealth of knowledge they had having played 15 seasons, and he's only in year six of starting. And so that mental ability to just keep kind of stacking things, and I think where it comes out the most obviously for him is it becomes subconscious. It becomes, these are the things, again, kind of getting back to what's the checklist of things on this play. You don't have to mentally go, all right, do I have that one? Do I have that one? You just kind of know it. You feel it. You know it. You get through the checklist. And then you get to you know the uber top level of the Andy Reid checklist on the things he can provide you. And now you can spend mental focus on those minute, minute details that you weren't able to in years two and three because you were still thinking about, all right, I got to look at this corner because on this play, if he's outside leverage, that means two. And he, don't, he doesn't have to do that anymore. That's all subconscious and he can get to the end of the checklist quicker. And that's where the ease and the flow of everything that he's doing out there becomes apparent. Um, and you can get into the stuff at the line of scrimmage more easily because, again, he doesn't have to like think about, all right, we're going up against this team, and this team likes to blitz primarily from the tighter shade, so kind of away from the three technique. Let me look at the front. All right, what's the front? That's the tighter shade. Let me look to that side. It's it just, it's you line up. I know where the three technique is. I can see the indicator. He's not coming. Okay, I'm going to get off of that and go somewhere else. And so the quickness and the, the rapidness and the tempo and the pressure you're able to put on a defense when you're able to do that subconsciously yeah, that he's gonna keep getting better. He's not gonna he's physically, he's 28, so he's entering his physical peak, which is probably gonna be a six to seven year run with how well he, he keeps himself, regardless of <laughs> the, the shirtless photo in the locker room. Combined with again, you know when I he's 32. That. I I respect that. <laughs> the shirtless photo in the locker room is one of my favorite things that has happened over the last two weeks. My barometer for whether things have entered the greater like public consciousness is whether my wife mentions them to me. So she sent me a picture of Mahomes shirtless in the locker room and we were talking about it and she wanted me to be clear about this because she knew I was going to talk about it on the show. She's like, I was not making fun of him. He doesn't look bad, but he looks like any man. He looks just like any random dude. And I was trying to explain to her, I was like, this is maybe the greatest football player who has ever lived. We are going to mention him with like the greatest athletes in the history of North American sports. And that's what he looks like. That's why it's incredible. <laughs> Every person who has a slightly doughy body should believe they are capable of anything because that photo exists. Okay. Look, you, you live in a cold weather city as well. 
Obviously, we know how cold it was the Miami <laughs> sure game. Do. You know, you gotta you gotta do what you can to stay warm when you're living in a cold weather city. If he was playing in Miami or Arizona or you know L.A., it might look a little different. You know, you don't have to keep on a couple extra pounds to stay warm in the winter. But as a guy who's got to play in you know minus thirty wind chills, maybe maybe that's the advantage that we're not talking about. He's a dad of two now, right? Like, I mean, he's got a lot of <laughs> stuff on his plate. I'm sure there's a lot of like chicken fingers and bullshit that are being thrown in the microwave at the Patrick Mahomes household. So I no fault of his own, and I, I totally respect it. How many guys belong on a list with him when we're at the end of this? I, I think that we're already at that part of the conversation. You know, if, this, if he finishes this off, if it's three Super Bowls in the first six years, if it's two MVPs, if it's Super Bowl titles in years where you're not supposed to win it, when you're an imperfect version of yourself, when you're arguably the worst version that you've been, have you like sat back and really considered that you played with a guy who might go down as like the greatest player of all time. Yeah. Which is why I'm rooting for all the success uh, because I want him to stack that resume. And I want to say I played with the best player ever. Uh, and I won a Super Bowl with him when he was still young. So yeah, I have considered that, you know, I, I, all the ar- the arguments and who's who's better, who's not. We can't compare him with Brady because Brady has a 22 year resume and totally, you know, not to go full Mike Tyson, but the resume is unimpeachable and all those things. Like you can't argue with the resume until Pat's retired and until you look at what the resume looks like. I think you can compare six year windows and six year peaks. And, you know, I think Aaron Schatz looked at that and originally said Pat had the best six year window and then changed it and said maybe Peyton Manning had the best six year window. But I think given the age and given everything else going on around him, I would say this is the best six year window of quarterback play, you know, especially adjusting for the fact that it carries, you know, years, ages 23 through 28. And it's the first six years of the guy's career. Absolutely. And, so, and the playoff play performances. Right. What he's exactly. Done the playoffs, so the fact that he's played an MVP level for 17 playoff games combined with the regular season stuff, that to me is what puts it a little bit over the edge. Right. And so the best argument I've seen is, you know, not Jordan, not all. It, it's the Tiger versus Nicholas, where yeah, we you about know, this, Jack yeah. has the 18 majors, and that's a record that's not going to be broken, obviously. But Tiger, those first five or six years of his career, he was so much better than everyone else so early, and it was so obvious that he was the best guy that's ever done this, combining the physical and the mental. And I think that's where Pat is right now. I think it's pretty obvious for anyone who's watched that he is the best version of what an NFL quarterback has looked like from a well-rounded perspective that we've ever seen. Um, Now, it's only six years. So again, it's hard to compare that against a guy like Brady, who's so accomplished and probably gets underrated physically based on the fact that he was, you know, a stiff guy in the pocket and he wasn't running and stuff. But people need to go back and watch the Super Bowl and watch him throw the ball 78 yards across the field to Randy Moss and be like canning. He's six five. He had a cannon at the peak of it. When you look back yeah, at and no like one talks about that to 11 Brady, it's insane. Yeah. And so, you know, Brady's more physically gifted than people give him credit for. It's just, he was not a mobile guy. Um, but again, what Pat can do and, and what all those things, I think this six year window is to me, the best six-year window of a quarterback play, especially when adjusted for the age. And so, yeah, I'm hoping he stacks up wins and Super Bowls and accolades. And I hope when it gets to the end of it, you're able to kind of compare him more favorably to Brady and he'll have a similar amount of team success combined with kind of more on-field flair and feeling like the physical talent level was higher. Um, So yeah, I'm I'm hopeful for that. And uh, I have thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> was there any point during your career or is there any point even early on where you thought this might be possible? Where, like we would be having this sort of conversation six years in, or is that just too far fetched to even imagine when you're in the moment? 
I think we knew based on the first couple years how special he was. I just think Tom Brady ruined everyone's expectations for what the best quarterback of a generation looks like. Um, and you like to expect, you look at all these other quarterbacks. I mean, the top other quarterbacks went to four Super Bowls and Montana won four, I believe, and Bradshaw won four and Aikman went to three and Peyton went to two. And you, you kind of look at guys and no one had really been to more than four Super Bowls. And so you can't say like, you should expect your quarterback to go to the Super Bowl 50% of the time he plays in a full NFL season. Like, that doesn't seem fair. And here we are, and we're in number four of six seasons. And so he's already, like, blown through the expectation level, even adjusting for Brady, of what every other great quarterback of all time has been. And so that that's the part where early on, just kind of being a realist and just understanding the realities of the NFL— like, yeah, it would be great if he could get to six, seven, eight Super Bowls and maybe win four or five and kind of be in that, uh, in that realm. But I don't think anyone could plausibly say that, you know, even after two or three years, the expectation was still that he would get to four Super Bowls in six seasons and play in six straight conference championship games. Like, I think you'd be a dreamer to say that. Like, the talent was there, the ability was there, but just the realities of the NFL weren't there. And it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty special. As somebody who loves this team, who knows this team, who still feels like you're a part of the fabric of this team and wants the Chiefs to win on Sunday, what is the thing you're most worried about? Like, what are you going to be going to bed on Saturday to be concerned about? I would just say that the offensive line keeps up its level of play because, as we discussed, that's kind of been the biggest differentiator of, of the past month and a half or so. I'm... Not too worried about San Fran's offense versus, you know, Chiefs defense. I know there's the stats of number one rushing attack versus, you know, 29th and run defense or whatever it was. The Chiefs run defense has never been good and that's never really mattered in the playoffs. And when we had to stop Derrick Henry in that rushing attack, we did. And when we had to stop San Fran, we did. And every single time Spags has had an answer for a rush defense that's not necessarily good on paper, stopping a rush offense that is good on paper and in reality. Um, and of course, that's of the four matchups, that's the one that's least important to me anyway. Um, so I'm not as worried about, you know, their offense versus our defense. I just think so much of the chiefs relies on the offense. Cause even when the chiefs defense is playing their b best version of ball, if the offense doesn't do their part, it's still a loss. And I think that's, you know, what we've seen these past few weeks is that the offense is able to do their part, especially early, gives the Chiefs defense the confidence that they can go out and they can even be more physical and they can maybe take an extra liberty or two to kind of do their job because we've already got the lead and the offense is playing well. Um, so, yeah, I would just say it's, again, offensive line-wise, making sure the operation's good, they're getting up to the line of scrimmage, able to get through, you know, all the double and triple cadences and, and recognize things. Because I think San Fran's going to throw stuff at Pat and this offense that maybe is against what they normally do because everyone knows oh, how static to. they are. They yeah. To. So being able to stay on top of the operation and to give Pat the time to make different calls, see what they're doing, get in and out of different snap counts to confuse the defensive line, obviously block the guys physically up front, handle the volume of plays that's going to be in. Um, that's the biggest pause just because can you trust four weeks over 16 weeks? You know, that, that that's kind of the, the worry, as it were, for me as a Chiefs fan. I know that you know you want this for Mahomes and you want this to keep going on this trajectory. Who else? Like when you're thinking about if the Chiefs were to win this game, the person that you have in mind for, I really want this for them. Who comes to mind for you? Well, if he's starting and playing, it would be Nick Allegretti. I think that would be kind of a really cool first, cool full circle moment for him. 
you know, he was thrust into action in the Tampa Super Bowl, and that was his, uh, you know, kind of first taste of, of playing in the Super Bowl, and that was obviously a rough game for the offense line and for the team in general. Um, but just knowing the guy he's been, you know, how valuable he is around that organization and in the locker room and how good of a guy he is, and I think he has two Super Bowls at this point, so it's not like he's hurting for rings, but I do think it is different if you're not the guy that's out there for every single snap and yeah. you're not the guy kind of representing the offensive line. So, you know, I for the people that have seen it, that clip of him after last game being emotional and kind of uh, showing, you know, how much it meant to him to be able to play in that game against Baltimore and to perform and to come away with the victory um, and him being, you know, still one of my best friends on the team. I think uh, that would be especially cool for him. That's all I got for you. Always great to chat with you, my friend. I'm sure you're going to be more nervous than half of the guys that are playing in this game by the time it kicks off on Sunday because I know that's how you're built and how you're wired. But it's going to be fun. It's going to be a great game. Very much looking forward yeah. to it. And always appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, guys, that's all we got. Thank you so much to Chase. Thank you so much to Mitch. Really enjoyed both of those conversations. I hope you guys did as well. We only got one more podcast coming your way before this game kicks off for me, and that is our monster preview episode. We will have a fun surprise during that monster preview episode that may involve me paying off a bet that I lost. So please be sure to not only check out the podcast version of that show, but also the video version, because it is going to be particularly embarrassing for me, and I hope enjoyable for you guys. For now, that is all we've got. Appreciate you listening. We'll talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.